Welcome to all our participants to the Office of Research Innocenti, UNICEF's office in Florence. I'm your host, Sarah Crow, and joining me from around the world will be a host of different uh, great panelists from India, Pakistan, South Africa, the West Coast of the United States, and here in Central Europe. And of course, our hundreds of participants around the world. So welcome again to What the Experts Say. This is our very first Leading Minds online. We're looking at coronavirus and children. They used to say it takes a village to bring up a child. Well, today it clearly takes the internet. Never before in history have so many children been online since the pandemic started just a few months ago, a seismic change. COVID-19 is an unseen virus and its, and its children are largely unseen victims. They're unseen, they're unheard. Myself and my colleague, David Anthony, are going to put questions to this great group of panelists that we have from all around the world and try and dig deep into why, uh, what is happening in the lives of children who are online and how this very teachable moment is shaping all our lives, but particularly children. David. Thank you, Sarah. Um, welcome to the show. Um, before we go on, my name is David Anthony and I will be the co-presenter with Sarah Crow. Uh, but before we enter the show proper, I'm gonna invite our boss, Gunilla Olsen, the director of UNICEF Nucenti, to formally introduce the Leading Minds Online series. Gunilla. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and best of greetings from UNICEF Nucenti. As we speak, around 1.5 billion children are out of school as a consequence of the lockdowns in place to combat COVID-19 in 188 countries across the globe. While this confinement is beginning to ease, trepidation and uncertainty remain and increase. A truly global recession in 2020 involving an estimated 3% contraction in the global economy, far worse than the 2008-2009 downturn, awaits us. Its effects will be devastating to economies, societies, households, and especially for children and young people. So far, children have largely been spared the harshest health effects of the coronavirus, but these are still early days. As the virus spreads within low and middle income countries where millions of children already suffer from multiple health conditions, undernutrition and miss out on routine vaccinations, the health risks to children are actually set to increase. The secondary effects of COVID-19 on children are already apparent. Loss of or limited schooling is one of the most evident, but there are others. Signs of increased domestic violence against children and women across the world. Indications of accelerating mental health distress and trauma. Fears of rising child labor and child marriage to combat the economic effects of the crisis. And the crisis is only likely to sharpen already deep existing inequalities within countries and societies, not lessen them. But it doesn't have to be this way. We must not let the COVID crisis impact damage children's futures. Instead, let us begin by focusing attention on how the pandemic is affecting them now in all forms. And that is why UNICEF has launched its global agenda for action for children in the time 
of COVID-19. This agenda has six simple but really fundamental pillars. Keep children healthy and safe. Reach vulnerable children with water, sanitation and hygiene. Keep children learning. Support families to cover their needs and care for their children. Protect children from violence, exploitation and abuse. And protect refugee and migrant children and those affected by conflict. Without urgent and compelling action, the health and economic crisis risks transforming into a child rights crisis. This is why we have brought our Leading Minds conference series online, to convene world experts to explore how we can best enact Agenda for Action and keep millions of girls and boys healthy, safe and learning. I'm really, really delighted to open the series with a pressing and critical theme of children online. The benefits of being connected are clearer than ever, with millions of children under lockdown relying on the internet for learning, for friendship and for play. Yet there are grave concerns about greater exposure to online risks, youth mental health, the quality and consistency of online schooling, and the deep digital divides that persist among children and young people within and among countries. We're extremely fortunate today to be joined by a distinguished set of experts on our first Leading Minds online series, moderated by Sarah Crow and David Anthony. And I thank the Leading Minds team for the great work that you have done in bringing this to us. And I welcome from the bottom of my heart all the participants online to the series on COVID and children. And I now look forward to sitting back and listening to and learning from what our panelists have to say. Thank you so much and over to you, Sarah. Thank you very much, Gunilla. Yes, indeed. Children may not be infected so much by this virus, but they most certainly are affected extraordinary, uh, disproportionately in many ways, especially when you think that 1.5 billion children are out of school and that doesn't mean that they're necessarily in any way learning. Before I go to the panelists to introduce themselves and to ask them one question with a very brief answer, let's have a look at some other data uh, that we've pulled together that has just come out in the past couple of weeks. So 99% of the world's children are in some way living in a form of restriction right now. And it's quite a, quite a staggering number when you think of it. So I'm going to move in a kind of round robin 
uh, starting from, let's say, the sunrise to the sunset. Sunrise, uh, of course, is now in California uh, and then going to, uh, to India. In fact, as it's so late in India, let me first start there. So I would like each of you to introduce yourselves and answer this one question. What is the one thing that has surprised or even shocked you about children online uh, since the pandemic and global lockdowns began? I'll start in Goa, India with Vikram Patel. Hi, Sarah. So uh, just to introduce myself, I'm Vikram Patel. I'm a psychiatrist. I work at Harvard Medical School, but I work a lot with children and young people in India through an organization called Sangat uh, that I'm associated with. So Sarah, your question is a tough one to answer, but I think um, what I see as happening in the last two or three months is escalating a process that has already been in motion for the last decade and a half. Um, it's just pushed it much further forward so that almost everything that we're expected to do in our lives, and I say expected, uh, uh, it's not that we want to do that. Um, uh, in terms of our, the way we work, the way we interact with each other, the way we purchase things has been pushed online. Now, I, I do worry a little bit about how much we can actually do these things online for two reasons. First of all, I think for children and young people, as your video so nicely showed, there are enormous digital inequalities already, and those are only going to get even further uh, exacerbated in the weeks and months ahead. I just read a statistic today that only one in eight families with a child who should be in school in India actually has access to the internet, just one in eight. And so this idea that we can move everything online is a mirage for many, many families, for many, many people around the world. I think uh, uh, you asked me what's the real shocking thing. The real shocking thing to me is that even though this particular pandemic and the policies to control it have almost completely upended the lives of young people. Where are the young people in decision-making? Where are their voices? And it concerns me greatly that right now, there isn't any young person who is working in government or civil society to shape the way the world organizes its response to this pandemic. Thank you, Vikram. Moving now to Lahore, Pakistan. What for you is that one thing that has been so shocking uh, about what's happened with children online since the global lockdowns. Um, thank you, Sarah, for having me. Uh, my name is Igadad and I, um, I'm based in Pakistan. I run an organization called Digital Rights Foundation. We work with different communities, including young uh, children, which specifically around their safety on internet. And um, taking the conversation forward uh, by Vikram, I guess one thing that actually shocked me was in the in this mad rush towards a lockdown people uh, governments and societies and our academia had a focus on getting as many children as possible online without even thinking about the safety measures that that are needed there was absolutely no conversation about tracking about hacking surveillance protecting children in the online space or how to tackle the issues of uh, digital divide or even poor uh, internet uh, signals. So I, I, uh, I'll take this conversation forward, but this was like shocking for me that absolutely no um, uh, idea around online safety while children are online at the moment. Great, thank you. Then passing to Cape Town, South Africa. What, what stands out for you? 
Thanks, Sarah. So just to introduce myself, I'm Patrick Burton. I'm the Executive Director of the Centre for Justice and Crime Prevention here in South Africa. And I'm also a researcher that works around violence against children, violence prevention more broadly, specifically on um, online violence. And, you know, there, there's an element certainly of what shocked me and what Vikram has said, and that is perhaps here in South Africa, the lack of, of real awareness around the digital divide and how to cater for that. Um, but I'm also thinking not so much in terms of the digital divide as it relates specifically to children, but also as it relates to the systems around children. So the divide in access um, for parents and caregivers, for social workers, educators, service pro providers that sit within the systems to support children, but also the level of skills that exist in technical skills and digital literacy um, amongst those supporting children through this process. Great. Moving now to the West Coast, very, very early in the morning. Thank you for joining us, Mizuku. Um, please introduce yourself and tell me. Introduce yourself and tell me what really stands out for you in this last um, last couple of weeks and months. Sure. Thank you, Sarah. So I'm Mimi Ito. I'm a cultural anthropologist and I'm a learning scientist, and I study uh, how young people engage in social life and gaming and play and other activities they do for fun online, um, but with an eye towards how we can make those engagements productive and educational. And I direct the Connected Learning Lab at the University of California, Irvine, and I also uh, lead a nonprofit called Connected Camps, which offers online learning experiences for young people. Uh, so the thing that surprised me the most, uh, you know, uh, uh, the other panelists have remarked about some of the challenges of moving on uh, online so quickly and without any plan in terms of education. Um, I think one thing that happened because of that that's been extremely interesting is that we have unprecedented visibility into the home lives of young people. Our educators have unprecedented visibility into the home lives of young people. And for some, that means an awareness of these issues of digital access, digital divide that um, so many of you have remarked on. Uh, and it has um, been really surprising to me how quickly that awareness has shifted to an understanding that the whole child is important for learning and the context of learning are important beyond the walls of the classroom. And this is an argument that I've been trying to make for decades as a social and cultural learning scientist that you have to take into account their social and emotional health, their well-being. Uh, you have to take into account the family supports, their digital access, all of these things in the home. But I think um, before this um, pandemic forced educators to encounter the realities of disparities in home life, it was really easy to ignore it because the classroom walls had this sort of equalizing function, but today they are literally looking into the homes, living rooms, and kitchens of their families. And the conversation within education, whether it's in higher education where we teach or for the younger kids has been, look, we have to get them devices. We have to make sure that they're healthy, we have to make sure that their social and emotional well-being is taken care of. And I think that awareness will persist even after kids uh, get back to school. Thank you, Mimi. Uh, over to you, Daniel, for a UNICEF perspective on what do you think stands out uh, since the lockdowns began? Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Daniel, and I lead the research program on children and digital technologies at UNICEF in Ochenti. 
Um, and I, I lead a range of evidence generation programs with children around the world. We're looking at their use of digital technology. Um, so, so Sarah, you ask a question with, with many answers, and I think my colleagues on the panel have covered some of the shocking aspects. Uh, the rush towards digital solutions for education or COVID tracking without considering issues of surveillance, privacy, and data protection. Um, that's a big challenge. I think for me, I've been positively surprised at how the lockdown experience has turned the discussion about screen time on its head a bit. Um, people seem more on board now with the idea that screen time is valuable, that it's beneficial for children, um, that video games and social media are great ways for children to relax and de-stress and spend time with friends. Um, and I think there's a really positive shift in mindset. I also hope, like Mimi was just saying, that this will persist. Um, I think it will help us think more constructively about what young people do online, um, what kind of content we as a society would like them to engage with, and also what kind of resources and support they need to be able to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela. I'm going to go back now to uh, Mimi in the west coast of the United States uh, to pick up on the last point you made. Uh, you also referred to this generation who are now coming out of college uh, as the COVID generation, almost as though it's identifying them. Uh, what do you think, given that you're in the area where, you know, is well, well known for tech giants, what do you think the issues that um, you brought up on privacy and protection, all the panelists have pointed to this, that there has been, particularly Nikhad in, in Pakistan said, there was no thought that really went into this. So in your view, considering this COVID generation, uh, what, what is the most concern, the biggest concern there when it comes to the data protection and tech giants? How can they help? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, it's such an important question and I think it ties to what Daniel just said um, about how quickly the screen time debate has shifted to accentuate the positive. I think the risk there is obviously that, you know, um, tech companies are like newly empowered in this ecosystem because we have recognize their value in ways that, you know, I study mostly teens and they've been trying, as Daniel has uh, mentioned, to, um, they've tried to convince their parents that technology is actually a good thing. It's a source of social support. It's a sort um, a place for learning, all of these things. Um, but adults for until COVID hit have really persisted and there, there's been a very resilient generational divide in the appraisal of technology as a positive versus a negative, where teens have always seen it as a lifeline to social connection, to belonging, to emotional support, all of these things. Um, and now we're in an environment where suddenly grown-ups are experiencing what teens experience on an everyday basis, which is not being able to be physically co-present with people they want to bond with. That's the reality of teens' lives. Most of the time, they're under surveillance. They don't have agency and control of their own movement of space, and therefore, social media technology is so valuable to them. Um, and this is sort of an awareness that grown-ups don't have until they're forced into a situation like this. So I think there's a very interesting reorganization of some of the generational awareness. Um, at the same time, I think that the other sources of generational tension, which is that the young people today are inheriting a world that was broken by the older generation and just the fact that they're calling COVID the boomer remover and, you know, it's all exacerbated these tensions, this 
is in the US context, this is the kids who have lost their graduations this fall are also the kids who their first election was the one that brought Trump in. Um, they're inheriting you know, a massive climate crisis and they will be entering the workforce in an unprecedented global recession. And so this idea that grownups have the solutions and they know what they're doing, um, that has really been at risk. And the um, tools that young people are using even, I mean, the other thing that I almost mentioned in answer to the first question is just um, looking at teens and young adults, how quickly they have mobilized around this current crisis to do volunteerism, to um, support one another on an everyday basis. And I think there is a shift um, overall from what had been a tech clash against a lot of the promises of technology to sort of a resurgence, not exactly of what we saw in the 90s, but definitely a reappraisal of technology and youth as a potential for social good and change. And you mean, you mentioned a boomer there. remover, you said? Well, yeah. What did you really mean? What, what is meant by that? Oh, the boomer remover is what um, young kids, some, not all young kids, some kids are calling COVID. <laughs> and what do they mean by that? Well, because it's killing boomers at higher rates than it's killing young people. So it's sort of, um, yeah, it's an ironic term for, and then you're seeing, so there's a generational tension because um, young people are not suffering physically as much from COVID. So there's, there's um, you know, both, uh, it, it's widening that, that perception of risks where you see all those pictures of young people on the beach and not caring. And then, you know, when they start calling it the boomer remover, it's definitely uh, exacerbates some of that generational tension. That's a scary thought. And one you'd think would be weighing deeply on their anxiety. Uh, turning to you, Vikram, what do you think when it comes to, it's almost this um, kind of generational divide uh, that is coming up so sharply that Mimi spoke about. Uh, how are children processing this extraordinary seismic experience that they're going through when they're living it online? Yeah, it, it, we, first of all, you know, let me just say, Sarah, there isn't one experience, uh, you know, uh, even in one country like India, there are multitudes of experiences and they're very, very different. At the one end, for example, the biggest worry about a young person is that he or she can't attend her Harvard commencement in person. Um, at the other end, which represents, I think, the majority of young people in India is that he or she will go hungry tonight. Um, and I think there is actually, there's no way one can average out these things. Um, you know, even an average that says, you know, 30% of young people have internet access is an average that doesn't represent anyone anywhere. Uh, and I think we really do need to understand that there, there are diversities of young people's lives and experiences and a one size fits all idea that we're going to suddenly move the whole world online is actually completely uh, uh, delusional. It, it is not true. And I think we have to face up to it. it there are huge differences within and between countries. Uh, that said, I think what Mizuku said is really true. I mean, I think here's the, here's the, uh, here's the paradox. 
you know, young people, and I also work with teens, so I'll restrict myself uh, to that age group. Um, you know, this is the most critical transitional phase in the life course. We are making this incredibly complex transition from being totally and completely dependent uh, on adults for your well-being to being completely autonomous and independent. And you make these enormous transitions in big areas of your life, completing your education, finding a job and making relationships. And all of these have been thrown under the bus, uh, not by the virus, but by the containment policy for the virus. And at the same time, of course, the lethality of this infection when you're under the age of 20 is almost as good as zero. And so here is the irony. You are having to pay the price uh, in every aspect of your life. And I think Mizuko is exactly right. You're also inheriting a world which is environmentally destroyed. And of course, there is a very strong association between climate change and coronavirus. And it is the fact that actually we've destroyed natural environments. And in fact, this infection owes part of its origins to the fact that there is a, uh, there's an invasion of natural spaces by human habitation. So there's all of this wrapped in together. And my, my general feeling is that young people, apart from being anxious about their futures, are also damn angry. Uh, they're angry that they've been led into this sort of situation by grown-ups. And I, I completely agree. Their faith in the grown-up world must be actually uh, really, really low. I want to just finish by saying something about the issue of mental health, because that's come up a few times. Uh, I think, uh, you know, young people are very resilient. You know, they, just as much as I think they will feel anxious and despondent and panicky right now, if the circumstances should change in a way that is enabling, they will also feel a lot more optimistic because actually optimism is a very, very poor characteristic developmentally of this age group. However, if these situations continue in an unremitting way, then I do believe there are risks. There are really major risks to the mental health of young people. This is the age group in life when uh, most mental health problems emerge. Uh, and I do think this is a very important juncture for us to think carefully about what do we need to do to ensure that this stressful, awfully stressful situation that young people are facing can be mitigated and moderated in the very near future. Thank you, Vikram. You've mentioned a lot about, we've all mentioned something about digital divide and the sort of sense of haves and have nots that really have been exposed by, by this crisis and by this sense that children are really not seen uh, in this crisis because they're all online or if the, the lucky ones are online in many ways. Uh, turning to you, Nikhad, in, in Lahore, Pakistan, uh, when it comes, you've often mentioned that access to the internet is a fundamental basic human right but it's a bit of a luxury for you and for uh, i'll turn next to to patrick uh, in south africa to talk a little bit more about digital inclusion but what are you experiencing in south asia pakistan in particular when it comes to the exclusion how are children who are not able to get online how are they getting what they need yeah, so Sarah, the digital divide was always and uh, it was an issue in the world, especially in developing countries and the COVID-19 lockdowns world over have re-emphasized this divide as well as exaggerated it to a great extent. And if we take the example of uh, Pakistan, the lockdown basically revealed major issues with the stability and the reach of the internet connections across the country. Uh, these discrepancies existed before the uh, lockdown. However, as the internet became the integral uh, part of, uh, uh, around the lockdown, we sort of uh, noticed that um, it was like there were like lots of 
people who immediately felt that they are left out of this important messaging around the pandemic and also uh, when it comes to online taking online classes and stuff and additionally it um, uh, it also meant that you know it sort of revealed that that like divide among the haves and has not especially in the cities and in the rural areas the 70% of the population in pakistan live in the rural areas and most of the people they uh, sort of go to cities uh, to take part in a good academic institution and complete their education and once the lockdown started they had to go back to their villages and to their towns and i think that sort of revealed uh, when they went back and they had to take back those online classes and they didn't find internet in their villages and towns i think that's where they started protesting that either the state should look into uh, the covid first and figure out how the everyone can take part uh, uh, into online classes or internet accessibility should be also there on their agenda while they are dealing with other issues uh, but it's it was not the case and still you know there are students across uh, pakistan especially in the rural areas who are protesting uh, and asking the government to uh, either give them the internet or uh, you know give them the break in the uh, in the semester and stop the studies and focus on the pandemic first so i think they're like these uh, sort of issues but i have also seen as uh, somebody who is working on uh, a lot on you know like accessibility and looking into the digital gender divide that even if it's like uh, uh, pe people who have access to the internet it's they, we can see the divide within our household as well so the boys like i i would speak to a like pakistan is a you know like patriarchal society and i myself has growing up that i didn't have the same access to the internet and mobile phone the way my brothers had and i think it's still the same in the lower middle class and middle class families where we see that the boys can still take they can go and take online class they are free to do uh, uh, to take part in the online gaming but that's not the same for the girl child you know it's it's very unilaterally for them they can take part in the online classes but they there's expectation uh from them to take part in the domestic chores and take care of the uh, um, uh, uh of the family as well so i think there's this divide that we can see it's not just the accessibility it's also the patriarchal norms who, uh, which are creating this gender digital divide and you are uh, not only a lawyer and an, and an internet activist but a mother as well so you're witnessing this firsthand for yourself right there and then right there and, and now in real time. Uh, let me turn to Patrick Burton. We've we've heard about what what this is doing to the haves and haves nots in South Asia. Uh, in South Africa and the mm. African continent uh, more broadly, only 60% uh, of children are not online. So we're talking about mm. a very small number. Uh, so in a sense, a little bit academic. Is this not also really sharpening the divide uh, in South Africa and other mm. other African countries, between uh, parents and children, and between children and teachers, what are we seeing mm. there? Mm. Well, I think thanks for that. I mean, I, the, a number of dynamics here that I think um, are worth noting. The first is that we, you know, South Africa is somewhat different to many other countries on the continent, and we have much higher levels of access to de devices. 
um, and to the internet, but the barrier, the major barrier there is the cost, the cost for children, for households, for parents to get online. Um, so that's where the major barrier lies. It's not so much getting access in and of itself. Um, but certainly what, you know, I want to pick up on something that Liga had said around um, what's happening within households, because I think this is really important, how we're seeing this divide within households and between parents and children. Um, so I think it's generally accepted a lot of the time certainly here in South Africa and in many countries that work in the region, that children actually are more digitally literate, have better skills online than adults and parents and caregivers do. Yet in the response that we're seeing um, and all the support and guidance and tips, and I've been guilty of this as well, um, all the advice we're putting out there to for children to stay safe online, it's around um, how do we support parents and it's what should parents do? And yet parents themselves don't have the skills um, that may be required. And so it's also, I'm also thinking about how we need to come back to some of the really basic conversations that we have with parents around um, communicating. Um, so it doesn't become about the, the divide in the technical skills, but it's more about how do we actually mobilize parental support and again, support of those structures and systems that are in place or should be in place to support children um, from the protection sector, from the welfare sector. Um, and we build up the systems and support around communication. What are the sort of offline, online resilience factors that can be, be uh, promoted and fostered? Um, and I think it's also perhaps a good opportunity for children and parents to start engaging around the, the divide that does exist between them. You know, start having the conversations where children can speak to parents sometimes um, and say, well, let's talk about how I stay safe online or how to activate, you know, the parent control measures. Um, but I, I, if I can just say one more thing that I think we've seen play out here in South Africa, and I think we're seeing other countries in the region, again, it's around how we work to support children staying safe online. And, how are we doing that in the context of massive inequalities and divides? So, you know, again, we, we're putting a lot of emphasis on, on how parents and caregivers can support children to stay safe online. But what's really been highlighted are the, the additional burdens on the household, economic stresses, um, emotional stresses on parents and caregivers and on the households, which we know um, impact on relationships within, within the household. Um, and so we're asking parents to engage with, with, with um, children to you know to help them stay safe online, but at the same time we're seeing queues of thousands of people for standing in line for food parcels or grant payments, and they're out there all day. You know where do they find that time and emotional space to start engaging with their children around online safety? So um, you know, and that applies to probably the majority of the population. Um, and so I think we need to start conceptualizing what all those broader structural and economic um, inequalities um, and sort of failings are and how we conceptualize this within that environment. And clearly, as we heard earlier on, the secondary, the secondary effects, the secondary impact of this, uh, of this crisis uh, is not yet felt. And clearly that's going to be in the economic field. Uh, turning to you, Daniel, in your work uh, with UNICEF Office of Research in Accenti uh, in Florence, Italy, it's kind of seen as the intellectual lighthouse, if you like. You've done a lot of work, Global Kids Online, on what children themselves are saying and doing. Uh, how do you see, how, what are you seeing there in that domain? How children are, are going through this right now? I mean, we haven't done, you haven't done recent surveys, 
but what does your experience tell you right now about issues that have been of concern to parents, such as what they're exposed to online? You know, you spoke, I think, about a third of children are, are exposed to harmful information, fake news, this kind of thing. What are you seeing from your work? And I, I think it's um, right now we're in an interesting position because, as you said, a lot of children have just uh, jumped online. They do much more things online than they used to do before. And I think on the one hand, there is concern that they're going to experience more risks, but we don't know that. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's interesting to think about what, what's going to happen now that children rely more on technology for learning fun and friendships. Um, and we see in our research with children that uh, they can really learn a lot of things um, from using digital technology. And now it's becoming more and more central to their uh, entertainment, to their social interaction. Uh, and children know this. I mean, that much is, is very, very clear. They know about the learning opportunities. They know that this is central for social interaction. They know about the risks. And I think as adults, we need to be much, much more aware of the fact that they actually know. Um, and so right now, I mean, what I would like to pick up on is that many of children's favorite activities online, they're very conducive to, to learning um, and to social interaction as well. But there is a really interesting blend online between learning fun and friendships that, that kind of happen quite easily. Um, and children do a lot of informal learning or spontaneous learning through technology. Um, and that's not necessarily learning that we can easily measure or test like you would do in school, for example. Um, in our research, we see that some of the favorite activities that children do online, um, they tie in very easily with, with learning. Like by browsing the internet, they learn about hobbies or celebrities, comes through very strongly. Um, they read the news. A lot of children actually consume news online and they learn about the world. Um, from playing video games, they learn how to interact, collaborate with others, uh, to plan and strategize and so on. And those are really, really important things to learn. And we see that children are really motivated to, to engage in all of this because for them, this form of learning is actually more like entertainment, right? They do it in their spare time. They do it together with their friends and they do it for hours and hours voluntarily. And those are all really great learning opportunities. And I think that's fantastic and that it should really be encouraged. But my sense is that we as adults, and we see this when we speak to parents in our research as well, we don't always understand the value in this. Um, and too often in our assessment of online learning and our thinking around what children should get out of being online, we seem to focus quite narrowly on things that we teach in school, like did you learn maths or did you learn geography online? And that I think is not really where children find the most value. Right. Turning to you, uh, Mizuku Mimi, uh, in the West Coast, on the West Coast there in California in the US, uh, you, a lot of the work that you do is on connected learning. And you've written a lot about how you go from gaming, what Daniel is, has sort of alluded to somewhat, the other sorts of skills that, that children can learn and are learning. Given the fact that what we heard from Pakistan, from Nikad, that a lot of children are, it's, it's, it's divided between boys and girls. A lot of boys are gaming. So you have that sort of toxic masculinity perhaps that is emerging in that world. Uh, are girls experiencing this differently? 
And how are you going, how can you go from the gaming aspect to really learning in a deep sense when everything is online? Yeah, um, and thank you to Daniel for laying out a lot of what we've been trying to, you know, say and demonstrate in our research with what young people are doing and the learning in their social and recreational lives. Um, I think that's exactly the case that we've been trying to make and what's been um, become so much visible, so much more visible in this context is that we don't have as adults, as policymakers, as educators, we do not have the tools to support the kind of learning that Daniel was describing. So as soon as everything moved online, it became, how can I do my math class better on the internet, rather than saying, oh, we have an opportunity to leverage what kids are already engaged in to support critical thinking, social emotional learning, and to do it equitably, right? So this crisis has, and you know, this is a bit of a self-interested rant because what my organization is, you know, has been trying to argue for, you know, adults have to be involved in um, creating online communities to using online social networks as a context for support, for learning, um, for, I, we train teenagers to be online moderators, to create healthy communities within gaming and fandom and places where kids are going for fun. And adults have been largely absent, educators have been largely absent around the conversation about how to create a healthy internet. The conversation has been, how can I clock screen time to keep kids away from the internet? That makes me a good parent, not how can I be involved in making the internet a good one, a healthy one, a learning context. And you see how educators have responded to it largely, as Daniel said, in how do we reproduce an academic genre of engagement through online. And I think that's, um, you know, unless we can meet children where they are, it's going to accelerate these disparities that exist. So I think um, as you and Nagata described the gender disparities in gaming, it's a really good one to look at because historically, girls have not been able to have the same kind of freedom uh, on the internet, especially to engage in social engagements like gaming, where, you know, quite, you know, when we look at the actual learning trajectories of kids who get into tech, for example, you know, a really high proportion of boys will say that they got interested in tech with gaming, they developed their social relationships that support their tech learning through gaming, and it continues to be a social a source of social support for men in the tech industry, even after they become um, career tech people. So what's invisible, the invisible divide is the social capital around technology that young people develop through these online communities that are just as important for their success in learning as content and knowledge that gets pushed through schools. So I think that's where the real, um, I mean, I'm hoping that this COVID crisis is a wake up call to say, you know, it's not just about like limiting, controlling, um, protecting young people from the kid, but what, from the internet, but what are the social relationships that really make something like gaming um, a good productive learning environment? And that is not a technology question. It's a culture, it's a participation, it's a social connection. It's about involvement of organizations, of adults, caregivers, educators within the online worlds that young people care about. Um, and it, I don't think the question now is whether we can shelter or 
pull them from online spaces, but more um, how we can create the positive social supports to make them more productive for learning for kids, not just the super privileged kids growing up in tech families, but for all kids who might not have that kind of support in their household. Right, thank you, Mimi. I think it's a good time now to, uh, to reflect on some questions. We have almost um, 200 odd participants. We've had questions coming in from all over the world. Uh, I think we had an earlier one. My colleague David will start uh, looking at some of these questions. I think we had an earlier one uh, from South Africa on uh, particularly around the human rights issue because that was mentioned very strongly from, from Pakistan. If it is indeed a human right, then you know what, what is to be done with all those children who do not have access, uh, some 60% on the African continent. So over to you, David, to, uh, to take some of those questions, maybe start with that first one uh, to, uh, to Nikad or any others. Um, yeah, to you, David. thanks, Sarah. Um, a great discussion and wonderful questions coming in online for all of you. Um, we'll make sure that all of the panelists get your questions, even if we can't ask them all uh, in this live uh, webcast. Nikad, we have a question about, uh, you know, it's not been online now a violation of children's rights. Um, and if so, what do we do about that? Over to you. Nika, you're on mute. Could you? Thank you. Yeah, sorry. So, uh, David, can you repeat the question, please? Certainly. Um, uh, the question is is now not being online? Uh, a violation of children's rights. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the discussion was already there as a as an internet uh, internet activist or digital rights activist. I mean, I believe that everyone has uh, a fundamental right to access uh, information and communication technology, including children. They also have a right to privacy. I mean, that's where we always, you know, bring uh, the discussion around. Uh, over uh, surveillance or, ma or, you know, like, what do you call it, like uh, uh, massive surveillance on children or monitoring uh, through parents, parental control or, uh, you know, monitoring their devices. And I think uh, this, during this COVID, like one thing that we have realized and witnessed in Pakistan is that the di discussion is becoming more mainstream. Uh, I have mentioned this already. Uh, that now that you know the focus was mainly on bringing children online and take uh, online classes, it sort of also started a lot of discussion that who has access to internet and who has not, and who can come on uh, online and take classes, and then who can cannot take those online classes. So it's like you know the they like diversity of device that we can see, you know, the access to education, the access to different other facilities, but also, you know, like uh, the, 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 the kind of, uh, I think it's, 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 it's an, it's a human right in so many aspects, you know, from the, from the aspect of accessibility, from the aspect of, you know, the right to privacy, but also from the aspect of who have access and who have not, even in the lower middle class and, uh, uh, middle class families, we have seen that it's absolutely okay. Uh, the boys can do whatever they want with their devices, but the girls cannot. And uh, when, uh, you know, we, we were just having a discussion around online gaming. I mean, I actually worry 
about uh, you know the already existing divide in the society around uh, you know the violence against women uh, which is now increasing in the online space because young people uh, or like people have more time on their hands while they are sitting in their homes and have access to internet and i think there is this fear within the families or the male uh, male members of the families who are the heads of the families who sort of try to control the activities of women and say oh you can be online because there is an that you can be harassed and i think there is always a focus on women that what what she can do and she cannot just to protect herself and i think this is the kind of thing that i i'm seeing that increasing where boys can do whatever they want but the girls are still their activities are controlled i mean i as a single parent i mean i witnessed my son he like he can play a game on a mobile phone and now we have games where they can actually people can talk to each other right so i can hear the voice coming out of a room and i and i know that all right so he's playing a game and that's why he's like talking to some other person through a game but you know it's not normal for a girls so if a girl girl is in the room and you know if she is like talking like that alone i don't think she can do it because then the family will be like what's going on who's she who she is talking to what she is doing and i think that's where the toxic masculinity i can see that it's actually um, i mean i worry about that that it the already existing inequality in the society will actually increase thank you nikhil from big circle in uh, in south africa any others coming in online there david i see quite a few there questions sir i'm going to have another one maybe to mimi and to vikram um what are the negative aspects of of all of this uh, extra screen time on kids not only on their social and emotional development but also on their health first maybe mimi and then to you vikram Yeah so I think the negatives a lot of you know the, the those have been getting quite a lot of play I think um for quite some time uh just I think a lot of the negatives tend to be framed in relation to the adults that are on this are the same side of the screen so you know um the disconnection from physically proximate conversations as I think what grown-ups complain about the most is that um in our research with teens and mobile phones we found um you know this maybe not a happy finding for parents but for families that had really strong relationships the mobile phone tended to reinforce and augment but if you have less connected families then the teens use the mobile phone as a way to disconnect from the family relationship so it's not so much that the technology is driving that disconnection but the technology can amplify disconnects between relationships that aren't already strong so i find that to be one of the um one of the negatives that is less commonly understood than some of the more obvious ones like just a lot of screen time not going outside etc cetera, etc cetera, that i think are well understood so i just want to weigh and i completely agree i think the conversation thanks mimi uh, vikram 
Hi, I want to agree with the, what what Vivi said. I think very much the relationships that we form on the on online, I, the young young people form online, are often heavily moderated um, uh, and and modified by the environments that they face in their real world environments. And I think uh, uh, she's exactly right. I think you know, when parents are focused too much on the social media, they should perhaps step back a little bit and think about the relationship that they have with their children as an alternative. I wanted to say one more important thing about this conversation on the issue of. Uh, um, uh, screen time and, and childhood is that there are huge differences when you're talking about a five-year-old and a 15-year-old. Um, we tend to sort of lump them together like as if they're all part of one kind of homogenous group, developmentally speaking. I do think what neuroscience is telling us is that a five-year-old is likely to have different effects on their developing brain according to the amount of time they spend on screen as compared to a 15-year-old. Um, I think there's also different kinds of ways in which we use screen. It isn't only the amount of time, but what we're actually doing while we're online. Certain kinds of activities, for example, affect certain kinds of cognitive abilities in different ways. So I think we need to be a little bit more nuanced and sophisticated in our thinking. It isn't only the amount but also what you're doing online, as well as what is happening in your offline world that really will help us understand best the risks to your mental health. Thanks Vikram, over to you Sarah. Right, well I think we've got, we've, we're still going to go into a bit of a deeper dive uh, now with the looking really at the policy aspects, the actions that can be taken by society, by children, by parents, by governments, by the UN, by UNICEF and other partners. Uh, and of course, the audience, the participants are welcome to stay for this. Uh, a few of you mentioned issues around exposure to violence, to abuse, uh, and these kinds of concerns online. Uh, and it's important now to flag that this series, the Leading Minds Online series, is going to be every two weeks. So the next one, we're actually going to look at uh, violence and what's happening literally behind closed doors uh, to children's lives, in children's lives uh, right now. So that's on the 21st of May at the same time, 1500 Central European time. So we'll say goodbye, <clears throat> excuse me, to our, to our um, big audience of nearly 200 participants, play out with a little video, and then we'll go into a deeper dive on the policy aspects uh, with our experts that David will moderate. Thanks, that's it from me, Sarah Crow, um, signing off and over to you, David. Let's play out for the little video first. to overtime and um, this is where we're going to go a little deeper into not only what the great aspects are that our, our panelists have actually talked about but what 
what we can do about it. So maybe I'm going to open that question up so that we can uh, address this from the back. Starting with Mimi. Mimi, if you had to talk to policymakers and parents, what are the things, the one or two things you would want them to take away from this particular conversation about COVID and children online? Yeah, so I think one of them is uh, really relating to the understanding that we have that this crisis has uh, given us about the relationship between in-school and out-of-school learning and sort of underscoring that education, ed educators need to take into account the conditions in the home, whether, and that's going to be, you know, diverse depending on the situations of the young people. So whether, you know, there are caregivers in the home that are able to provide, you know, in this forced homeschooling experiment we're in, it's really, you know, made clear that the divide between young people who have, you know, a parent who can be there, you know, scaffolding learning in the home, the digital divide issues, and also the absolute importance of social, emotional, um, and mental wellness in young people's ability to learn that the policies um, currently to, and the, you know, in the U.S., there has definitely been a movement towards social emotional learning as an element of education. But I think continuing to um, underscore the importance of the whole child and the um, relationship to the support systems they have at home are absolutely critical. Thanks, Mimi. Patrick, same question. What would you say to policymakers and parents? Well, I think what I'd say to policymakers is quite different to what I'd say to parents, um, I think. Um, so starting with, I mean, one of the things that's concerned me, and I think it would perhaps drive my response to both, the one com commonality would be, you know, we've all been raising rightly the concerns around online safety, the well-being and, and the safety of children online. But I think a lot of that has been driven by narrative of fear. Um, and we, we've seen, you know, th there's been a lot of data that's come out from IWF and Europol, Interpol around the increase in the number of, of child sexual abuse material, that images that are appearing online and things that are very, very concerning. Um, also, the number of reports to helplines that have skyrocketed in some countries. We don't understand what that data means. The number of reports is not in itself sufficient to actually tell us much because we need to know has there been targeting of, is it a result of more people becoming aware because of the material that's being promoted because of the interventions etc and i think there's a real danger that this narrative of fear is going to continue after this and it's going to impede on exactly the kind of rights that we've been speaking about and some of the advantages and benefits that us you know we, we can take away from this so i think it's how do we for me, for policymakers, it would be be aware of all these risks and da dangers, but we need to be very, very aware of how we respond in terms of promoting rights um, and understanding what all this data is saying. Um, and perhaps coming back to, I think, the point I made up front is we really need to take lessons away from what, from how online access how digital access, how the opportunities for um, remote learning and ed tech, et cetera, are located within broader systems of support and make sure that we 
adequately capacitate and equip those systems around a child um, to allow them to fully take advantage of those opportunities. I hope some of that made sense. Thanks, Patrick. Um, Danielle, same question, please. So this, I think this is a really good question and I, I actually am gonna expand on what Patrick was saying just now because I agree. Um, I think what I, would, what I would talk to policymakers about is, you know, what, what does society want children to get out of it when we go online? Um, and I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier that for children, you know, online learning blends with entertainment, blends with social interaction, but we haven't quite captured the potential of that. Um, and I think that's partly because we have focused more on the risks and harms, which both um, Patrick and Mimi were, were saying, uh, but also because it's difficult to say what, for example, high quality content and engagement looks like um, and how that differs from, from child to child. And so, you know, once we figure out what we want to achieve, then the next question becomes, how do we make sure that children are actually interested in what we think is useful content and engagement? And how do we ensure that they can access it? Because it's not just about having the content there, it must also be accessible and understandable. And so basically what I think we need to do is to work together with governments, also together with industry, um, to develop resources together with children based on evidence to make sure that the resources and the content and whatever we decide to do in response to not only COVID, but how we want to see the web develop in general, to make sure that it's useful and interesting to children. And once we have you know, these resources developed, we have to actually uh, use them and evaluate how they are received by children. And this is where research becomes a really important element. We have to actually see what works and then we have to adapt and improve as we go. And I think there are really no shortcuts here um, with too much online content having been developed and shared, but not evaluated in terms of its usefulness. And so we probably have a range of resources that children can benefit from that are amazing, but we have almost no way to determine which of these resources are useful and which ones are not. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's a time to kind of take a step back, let young people guide us on this um, together with some really strong research to evaluate what useful actually looks like to, to children. Thanks, Daniel. Um, Nihat, same question. Policymakers and parents, what would you tell them? Um, I think I would tell them that take a deep breath. And Nihat? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, so I can hear you. I, uh, what, I, what I would tell the policymakers and the governments that uh, this, uh, this is a very unprecedented uh, situation that we are dealing with. And I think they need to take a step back. They need to take a deep breath and they need to think about their strategies around dealing with uh, different communities uh, in our countries. And um, as I mentioned in, in the beginning that there is a rush in bringing children online and attend online classes and doing all of that stuff, I think it's important that, as Patrick mentioned, that we need to see what, what exactly is the content that is available online for them. Uh, and children need to be, they, they, they should participate in the design of that content because what, what is happening right now is that we are dumping 
all this content on them and they we don't even know if they you know if, if it is useful for them or not and they are absolutely not part of these discussions uh, and while governments and policy makers are making all these policies and emergency laws around covid i think child right i mean children rights should be integral part of this design of policy and i think this is the best time for us i mean it's a challenge definitely but also an opportunity for all of us to learn from this challenge and how we can you know when say multi stakeholder policy making we should also uh, consider our children as stakeholders while designing all these policies for them during covid thanks very much Lastly, Vikram, what would you say to the parents and the policymakers about well, what they can agree. do going forward? Well, I'd agree with everything that's been said before, um, uh, but just to amplify two points. Uh, one is that actually technology in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's just a technology. Um, I think, as we've heard repeatedly, it's what you use the technology for, how you use it, and what content you have. That is what I think we need to have consensus on. And I don't think we can see these conversations about uh, the kinds of content that are targeting children in isolation from the broader global conversations about how is the internet being utilized. Consider, for example, WhatsApp, the same platform can be used in wonderful ways for us to stay in touch with each other, to share learning lessons, etc. But the same platform can also be used to incite hatred and enormous amounts of violence. So it isn't the WhatsApp that really is the problem. It's really the level of control that society chooses to have on how that particular technology is being used. And David, to be honest, we do not have that consensus right now. Uh, and it's a, it's a work in progress. The second thing I will say is that to both policymakers and parents, equity is at the heart of digital uh, uh, access. Within the homes, parents need to make sure boys and girls, older and younger people have equitable access. And across society, policymakers need to make sure that the digital revolution can only really reap benefits if everyone has equal access, both, I think, in terms of the, the infrastructure, but also the cost. Can I pick up on that point? Because I think it's really key. And there was a question coming through about that. As Vikram said, it's neither technology itself is neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it. Uh, but one last question before we wrap up uh, and play out with the little video that we were going to see earlier. Uh, to each of you, just a quick, like 10, 15 seconds. You've all mentioned the digital divide, gender divide as well. But seeing that policymakers can't on them by themselves uh, bridge that divide how can it be done because this is really the key whether we look at internet today as a utility for girls and boys and young people around the world learning living it's we're going to have to be covid ready they tell us for the next while so just a whip round for each one of you, last comments on, uh, before the fire engine goes off somewhere, <laughs> uh, last comments on how do we bridge that digital divide going forward? First of all, starting from West Coast, uh, West Coast in the US, Mizuku, maybe. Yeah, I guess I would just call attention to not just the technology access divide, but the participation divide. Um, kind of uh, along the lines at, of what Nigat was underlying the gender divide between boys and girls and their access to gaming. And I think the solution there is also something other panelists have said, which is to involve 
um, young people and to showcase the work that they're already doing and the agency that they have and have already taken in creating healthy, supportive online spaces. And that's where you're really going to find the sources of innovation for how do you bring young people online and start uh, meeting diverse young people in their own specialized interest communities and areas. So, you know, for example, we've done research on young women who are really into boy band fan fiction and publish on their mobile phones and have created huge communities and support each other. And, you know, in this crisis, these communities are where they go to find their people and, you know, find their friends and to write about their um, you know, their concerns and all of the struggles they're going through. And this is the environment that policymakers are systematically not seeing. What young people are already doing in creating community values, um, society, you know, norms for online society that is already there. We don't have to create it from scratch. So I would say Great. meet young people Thank where you. they are. Thank you. Thank you, Mimi. And thank you for joining us. Last words from you, Daniel, and then moving to Vikram, Nihat, and Patrick for final thoughts. So I'm gonna actually echo what Mimi said. Um, it's not just about infrastructure and cost. I think those we can deal with. We see in our research uh, in a number of countries that actually um, parents also constitute a really uh, critical barrier to access for children, right? And infrastructure and cost actually is something that children rank as less of a challenge for them to overcome. So I think if there's one thing that uh, we should focus more on, it's um, helping parents understand uh, all of the advantages that Mimi just outlined. I think that's um, really, really important to, to Thanks, bridge Daniel. the divide. Vikram, final thoughts uh, from you in Goa, India, as the sunset should have set a long time ago. <laughs> Well, I want to sort of second, uh, you know, what uh, my, my, my colleague from Pakistan said, you know, I think we really need to work with parents in this region to, to, to enforce an equal status for boys and girls in their homes and all aspects of their lives. And I don't think the digital access is probably the most important thing on young people's minds um, in this region. Uh, and I think, of course, it's reflected on that, but it's not the most important one. And I also want to amplify what uh, many people have said is that really it's nothing about us without us. And I do worry greatly that there's a whole lot of grown-ups who anyway have pretty dubious credibility, uh, uh, you know, actually deciding on what's good or bad for young people. We really need to have them bang in the middle of every decision that's being made that affects their lives. Quite, quite right, Vikram. Uh, and I know in Daniel's work, he certainly does do that. It's always an issue with privacy and data and children going online and sharing when they're not always protected, but indeed. Final 10 seconds, 15 seconds from you, Nikhad, and then to you, Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, uh, in, um, in addition to what Vikram said, I think it's uh, uh, until or unless our governments understand that this is access to internet and information technology is a basic fundamental human right, uh, until then we cannot bridge this digital divide. And Patrick, your final thoughts. Thank you. It really is just to echo again, it's like an echo chamber a bit, but um, what's been said before, participation and inclusion, and that inclusion is critical. I mean, myself and co colleague have done work in East Asia, speaking to children involved in sex work, children involved, or children with disabilities, street kids, um, and this is all critical to them as well, and they've been affected by co COVID and they will be affected by COVID, we need to make sure that their voices and how they experience the online is brought into these conversations as well. Um, 
that content, etc. All of that's there for those um, groups Thank as well. You. Excellent. Thank you. I should say in closing that we will be doing a report, a synthesis of this last hour, uh, and that will be accessible, just sort of bringing together the key points. So it's not just about discussing, we're looking at kind of taking this forward and really pushing the advocacy agenda uh, for children and most importantly, of course, with them. We have various forms, uh, various ways to do that within, within UNICEF, of course. So thank you to our nearly 200 participants who joined us from around the world and to our fabulous panelists uh, from five countries. And, and of course, to my, to my colleagues, uh, to David, to Gunilla and the rest of the team. Thank you very much. And that's over from us. Till the next time on the 21st of May uh, on violence. And that's at three o'clock Central European time. Hope to see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you.